this week in the markets. Gold and silver blasted higher on growing concerns of a global economic slowdown. Well, welcome back to GoldSeek.com Radio, everyone. Your host, Chris Waltzek. Just a pleasure to be back with you on this Season 14, Episode 698 show. Well, precious metals investors were treated to yet another big week. So it's a pleasure to welcome back two big gold aficionados, Peter Schiff and Bob Hoy, bring their decades of investment experience to the show. Bob Hoy, editor and chief investment strategist of Charts and Markets, says U.S. shares are in an overvalued and precarious situation relative to historic norms. He disagrees with the Oracle of Omaha who thinks shares are at discounted prices. He's looking for a second great recession that could rival the 2008-2009 slowdown if policymakers at the Fed stay on the current trajectory and the next FOMC meeting is slated for about two weeks' time. Then Peter Schiff, head of Schiff Gold and Euro-Pacific Capital, returns with his insights. His Euro-Pacific Gold Fund, EPGFX, continues to outperform most of the competition. He's concerned by the trade skirmish between the U.S. and especially China, and now even Mexico might be in Washington's crosshairs. We discussed the Fed's balance sheet, which is still close to $4 trillion. That's almost 10 times where it was at the beginning of the Great Recession a decade earlier. So they really just haven't curtailed that excess monetary expansion. And with all that liquidity out there, folks are wondering, what type of firepower do they have to battle a recession? We both really agree. There's only two situations that make much sense here. Either the Fed takes the short-term pain to preserve the global reserve currency and by wringing out that excess liquidity, about $3 trillion at least off their balance sheet. But that, of course, would crush the, the already ailing financial markets, sending the global economy and the domestic economy into a great depression. They might continue on the current destructive path and continue a rate cut cycle. Of course, the Fed Funds Futures now are calling for it as soon as this December by about a quarter point, which essentially sacrifices the U.S. dollar and welfare of future generations. So that's the economic news this week and turning to the signal hunters. Now, we've been working for six months at my flagship signalhunters.net. We now own that domain. You can find all of our latest material. We've found multiple images that reveal evidence of level type 2 Kardashev civilizations. They're roughly anywhere from 300 to 1,000 years ahead of us. These are likely Dyson Sphere-powered reactors. These are from the official archives. We have not created any of these. Calling one of them this week the Sheik Stargate simply because one of the images appears to wear a turban. It seems to be a teleportation portal of some type. It's also a fusion plasma powered, possibly through a Dyson sphere, possibly not. We know that they're using electromagnetic manipulation of plasma, which as I'm sure many of my listeners may already know, can do that today. There also was a ship-like structure that we found with anthropomorphic features that resemble 
Stargate-like communications device that we found, Deep Space. These appear to be multi-dimensional civilizations. It's difficult to tell just how far along, but using a technique that we've developed, we will be publishing hopefully in the next few weeks now, in a book with great detail on some compression techniques that allow you to get a ballpark, just an estimate, using a very simple equation from peer-reviewed data as well as interpolated with my contribution. It gives you an idea of the general ballpark within hopefully a few hundred years. Keeping with Michio Kaku and Neil deGrasse Tyson and Brian Greene and all the greats out there, Dr. Gates, so many others. It looks as though we're looking at civilizations anywhere from 300 to at least 1,000 years ahead of us. We're desperate to find a Type 3, which, of course, would be the highest. I don't think we found anything like that, but we're still looking. We're also searching for this actual civilization themselves. They are reclusive. I'm working on an image tonight. I'll be able to find something there. It might have a civilization. So far, we're only seeing cursory signs of a civilization. It's too close, I think, to the power sources, the Dyson spheres. We found an interesting image on Mars that indicated a space travel theme. We found and posted it on Friday, reptilian evolution. This image from deep space was created to show the evolution of a reptilian race. You can see all the different profiles. As that morphs, the features change and the brain capacity explode in size. The text follows a similar pattern that we've seen, and that is a progression and evolution. Less compressed to more compressed, not just in the FRBs and the and other uh, deep space sources. So this is just further confirmation of my findings and hypotheses of the theories that we've put forth in this 150-page study. Almost ready for publishing, so really excited about that. Maybe the most remarkable finding of the week. Folks, we found, in my opinion, I can't prove it, a tokamak plasma containment device, which appears to be running a fusion reactor with a heat exchanger, turbine slash generator, alternator, and even perhaps a plasma condenser with plasma pumps, radiators, and whatnot, which appears to be powered by a Dyson sphere-like neutron star, perhaps, held within an anthropomorphic um, body, and we found two of these. If you haven't seen these videos, I think the most important find maybe of my career. So I'd love to hear from you. We believe that this image may represent a race that advanced beyond biological to AI or robotic as the image is clearly anthropomorphic. However, it's very robotic in nature. And the heart, however, has the image when it's reversed of a reptilian, we've seen much of this, a humanoid-like profile, and we see a few other of these humanoid-like images embedded within the AI-slash-robot-like, let's say, creature. We've also seen a progression just like deep space radio signals when we've decoded them and, and deciphered them. You might think of it as visual proof from official archives that is confirming the fast radio burst and so many other... I'm just going to go on a limb here, and I'm going to stake my reputation on it. This is de facto proof of highly advanced civilizations and intelligences so far beyond. And most of what we have here, can't wait to hear from you, gsradio at frontier.com. Just send me a message. And if you want to get involved, wow, can we use your help? We would love electrical engineers, astrophysicists. Um, if you're involved in crossword puzzles, you like the game Go, chess, hieroglyphics from ancient Egypt or Incan or Peruvian uh, images, things of this nature. Wow, could we use your help? If you like to solve puzzles, if people always call on you to fix something in the neighborhood, 
<laughs> we'd love to hear from you. We did not create these images. And we did not tamper with them. We simply cleaned and cleared them. And then, of course, the interpretation is, I think, the really challenging part because trying to understand and interpret just what has been found, deciphering that has proven to be one of the tougher things. And here is a final thing we found. An image from Mars that simply floored us. It appears to involve, we're calling it the Martian metamorphosis, that depicts clearly a birth or a transfiguration, if you will, a metamorphosis among several different creatures and a younger creature touching the forehead and the head of this individual. And it seems to be an evolutionary process, an insectoid, an amphibian-like humanoid, a highly advanced, most likely an AI level reptilian, a mammalian, a Neanderthal-like individual, and a modern Cro-Magnon. So I just wanted to share this with you. I'd love to hear from you. Maybe my interpretation's off. I'd like to know what you think about my Red Planet work as well. Moving on to the Q&A hotline, 641-715-3900. we'd like to hear from you, please call in, 514049. I'll try to get to those this week, 641-715-3900. And our mailbox number is 514049. Please just jot it down on a Post-it pad, on a Post-it pad, and or just plug it right into your phone or iPhone or Android. And you won't want to miss Robert E. And he wraps up the show with another must-hear editorial. Goldseek.com radio begins now with a market weather recap. Visibility virtually unlimited over the precious metal sector this week as investors turn to precious metals and related shares amid growing concerns of economic slowdown. Investors book profits on equities, choosing safe haven assets instead. At Friday's closing bell, the yellow metal blasted higher nearly $30, 13.11. Silver inched higher wrapping at 14.57, while the XAU shares Added about 5%, around $70 at $350. Black gold, though, fell just less than 10%, $5, finishing at $53.50, off the 12-month lows. Palladium finished up about 8 at $13.33, but platinum ended off about 9 at $7.94. The top story driving the metals this week, the yellow metal sword posting its first monthly gain in several months on trade tensions between U.S. and China, as well as several of our trading partners. News that our POTUS planned to impose a 5% tariff on all Mexican goods due to his concerns about immigration rattled u.s equities investors again that sent shares plunging below support that boosted the safe haven appeal of the yellow metal the president noted tariffs will rise 10 percent on july if the crisis persists and by another five percent for every successive month up to 25 percent by october 1st the u.s intended to impose trade tariffs on mexico the eurozone as well as china but china is retaliating promising that it will defend its interests all of this of course adding to global uncertainty and improving the odds for safe haven assets. Another supportive factor for gold is the potential for a U.S. rate cut. Currently looking at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the Federal Reserve is prepared to ease if it sees mounting risks, with the Fed Fund's futures heavily weighing a December-January cut by a quarter point on the overnight lending rate. Precious metals, bottom line. Well, Barrick Gold Corp., one of our favorites, blasted 5.5% higher Newmont Corp., another one, ticker NEM, blasted 3.5% higher. 
Plus, as I mentioned last week, super quant investor Ray Dalio has increased his funds holdings of the yellow metal. That's about all I need to know to know that I need more of that in my portfolio. The exchange traded fund Spider Street Tracks GLD up 1.35%. And the summer doldrums, of course, typically a bit boring for the metals, but we saw a nice week. Hopefully we'll see a ramp up as jewelry and related manufacturers, retailers prepare for the holiday inventories. Turning to the Wall Street report, heavy clouds rolled in over the New York Stock Exchange as investors sold shares amid increased trade tensions and growing concerns over a global economic slowdown. By Friday's closing bell on Wall Street, the Dow shed 168, finishing at 25,600. Meanwhile, the S&P dropped 33, ending at 28.26. Now the Nasdaq fell 166, ending at 76.50. Meanwhile, global equities headed for the worst month in about six months on news of China's manufacturing sector slowdown. That according to data on Friday. The standoff in the trade war certainly is not good news for investors. And all, most of this underscored by CNBC Mad Money's Jim Cramer, who warned investors to watch out. For this tariff mess, he's concerned that the nations around the world are on high alert. However, in his executive decision segment, he interviewed Todd McKinnon, CEO of ticker OKTA, a cybersecurity company whose sales were up 50% this quarter. Shares rallied 6%. It's had a bit of a rally. It isn't an uptrend. The company has 6,500 customers in high demand as security is becoming a really big issue. But keep in mind, it's had quite a rally here. U.S. shares bottom line. Well, the USA Today Greed to Fear Index finally dropped to the extreme fear category. It's nowhere near oversold conditions, I'd say, just yet. The technical position also is a bit troublesome here. Key support, frankly, breached. Traders are advised to be cautious. The alpha stocks defensive picks, though, performed quite well this week, moving a bit higher in treading water while shares sold off hard. So be sure to log in to your Alpha Stocks account and check out this week's candidates and portfolio. If you haven't already signed up, we'd like to have you. Just you can log in and sign up for your credit card or PayPal. It's as easy to do. You can do a monthly or an annual if you prefer. Coming up after the break, more Gold Seek Radio. Thanks for choosing GoldSeek.com Radio as a trusted business and investing news source. It's just a real pleasure to welcome Bob Hoy back to the studio today, formerly of Institutional Advisors, now Charts and Markets. Welcome back, Bob Hoy. Yeah, good to be with you, Chris. It's always interesting out there. Uh, the markets are fascinating. I just reviewed... A serious paper, well, no, a little article on the fact that the stock market is not overvalued. So uh, about two months ago, I had written a little piece and I thought, well, one of the things that's missing is somebody uh, claiming that the Fed could lower interest rates and that would keep the boom going. So these two things have come together, and this is written by a Canadian uh, 
Hey, economist guy, sort of along the gold side and has worked with some of the bigger firms. And uh, so it essentially, <laughs> it it says that it's not overvalued if you understand, like they use P.E. ratios, earnings. Um, and, of course, you can set future earnings anywhere you want. Uh, but what I've used is the S&P relative to wages. A friend of mine does the chart. So you take the average wage and divide it into the S&P, and he's got it all the way back to to the 1920s. So it is uh, exceptionally high. So then the other one he did was the uh, the New York... Though so the exchange, as I say, relative to GDP. Now that's another one that's very that's widely followed as well. And again, you can kind of make that one easier to handle by coming out with a very positive num estimate for GDP. But the the one that we look at here, uh, which shows that it's really not overpriced, and they argued that it was not overpriced because they and worked it relative to the 10-year yield, and then noted that on May the 8th, Warren Buffett himself, the great man, had come out and said as much that stocks are really not uh, overpriced. And he was using this similar argument so it's ironical because the study I did noted that not just was this S&P divided by average wage high, it was like at about 128 on the index. And I think in 2007 it was at 98. And then in... 2000, which was a very crazy big bubble, it was, let's just sort of say, 108. So relative to recent times, very high. And then relative to anything back to 1900, <laughs> very high. So this says high. And then the other one I looked at, I thought, oh my gosh, I hadn't thought of this for a while, is what this valuation was at way back at the start of inflation and financial assets, which was 1982. And that's, of course, when I came out when I was presenting and the slideshow included a slide that with a big line that no matter how much the Fed prints, stocks and bonds would outperform commodities. And at that time, the Wall Street was just discovering that high Inflation was due to the central bank. So at any rate, this was controversial. And the, the conclusion was is that we were going to go into another new era of inflation and financial assets. So no matter how hard the Fed pushed, commodities wouldn't be the game. Uh, financial assets would be the game, which has been the case. So then when this S&P divided by wages was very low in 1982, and then it got very high now, was 
a swing of a factor of 10 times. So then we thought, oh, let's look at silver. In 1980, when silver promotion was extraordinary, and it got up to a, a, a swing of, of a factor of, I think it was about 12. It was exceptional. Um, and then we didn't use this specific one, but this overvaluation thing we used on metal prices in 2011 when we took this, the deflated price of gold and deflated price of silver by the CPI and the deflated price of base metals. And the base metals, to deal specifically with those, had a huge gain. And we had a 100-year chart on that thing, and it was the biggest gain in, in on the chart. And then, so you had the big highs in 2008 and the other one in 2011. And so it remained high for a long time, which then prompted a huge expansion of base metal mining capacity. And our conclusion was that it would be a long bear market for base metals, so which we've had, and also for precious metals. So that one on then using my buddy Ron's newer chart approach where you took the valuation uh, beyond the to the CPI but to wages, and it, of course, would replicate, and it did, but the... Big swing was a five factor of five times. So the thing is that the S&P, relative to wages, is exceptionally high, higher than in 2000. So this makes it the highest in history, like the thing the chart starts in 1900. And the other one was the gain, the amount of gain. So we have had an exceptional event. Okay, now we'll go back to this valuation, uh, the kind that uh, Warren Buffett is using, and uh, that relative to the tenure, uh, they did a, some sort of comparison which says it's not expensive. But we, we now <laughs> are getting a big sell signal on the long end of the bond market from 20-year out to 30-year. So though that interest rate is going to change. It'll probably go up like the best of it is in. So then you want to go to the notion that the Fed will lower short rates and that will keep prosperity going. So, again, this one is, uh, oh, my God, we did this one decades ago in reading as much financial history as possible that short-dated interest rates such as treasury bill rate, three-month or six-month, and that's a market-driven rate of interest. It's changing all of the time. And it goes down in a contraction, such as down into 2009, where it was zero. And then it goes up in a boom. 
so it's gone up. And if you look at the T-bill chart and then also look at the chart for the administered rate, which nowadays is the Fed funds rate, um, previous generations it was the discount rate, and the Fed followed the market rates in turning up in '09. And it's obviously they're going to follow it when they turn down. So, again, to emphasize that short-dated market rates of interest go up in the boom, and they go down in the bust. These guys have got causation all screwed up. So if you take a look at 1929, the three-month bill yield went up until May-June, and then it turned down. So that then the Fed, for whatever reason, in August of 1929, raised their discount rate to five from five percent to six percent. And I, uh, the at in August of that year, the New York Times wrote it up as the policy was to tighten money to Wall Street and ease money to Main Street. That was the plan. But of course. <laughs> the stock market ran into a liquidity problem, and the whole boom evaporated. And the uh, Fed lowered its discount rate in that fateful October, so it followed the turn. So now, on the six-month bill, it this time around it set its high in December, and then in March began to break down. And the three-month one, which I think is more critical, it set its high uh, uh, in in April and has broken down. To the two of them, the six-month and the three-month, have broken down. And just to check things, uh, we looked at the LIBOR 3, the London Interbank Rate, and it set its high in uh, in December and broke down in March. So this is now in a declining trend. And what does history tell us, Chris? Interest rates go down in the bust. So the argument that, uh, we'll call him Martin, uh, Martin Merenbleld is sort of a Dutch name, that he carefully put together is, is a, based on theory and is not does not have enough empirical stuff in it. And, of course, this is the same theory that Warren Buffett's using. So this is going to be very interesting. And the, so the net result, Chris, is that the stock market, by valuation, is very high. And then the other part that is impressive is the swoop, how much it's moved in getting very high. Because that's a... High is a valuation. Getting there is a dynamic. And then you've looked at the establishment's argument, and it's not based upon empiricism. That's the notion that the Fed will lower interest rates and keep the party going. I had some very good quotes on that from uh, September 2007, where a leading spokesman said, all's well. The Fed's going to lower interest rates. And then you have 
an eye to what happened. And what happens is that the the fastest drops in the treasury bill rate occur with the worst of the part of a bear market. And the establishment really believes that a decline in interest of that of short rates will keep the market going. And it just doesn't add up. It's really rather pathetic out there in at the establishment level who cherish these theories and uh, never seem to check them in empirically with, with real evidence, like how they worked in the past. So this then gets us to look at the history of the Fed and when it was first formed, uh, the major bankers knew that uh, the um, a financial crisis would lead to a uh, a recession. So the idea then was that with the Fed there as the lender of last resort, um, it would prevent the crisis that precedes a recession. And as you know, Chris, there's been 18 recessions since the Fed opened its doors for business in January 1914. Now, here's very high-end opinion. August 18, 2007, John Malden, many followers, quote, credit markets will get back to normal as there is a lot of money that needs to find a home. Then you have a senior investment officer. This was in Bloomberg, September 4th, 2007. Quote, the Fed will ultimately ride to the rescue. And then the last one is really quite clear. Uh, this is uh, then the chief investment officer at Harris Private Bank, September 4th, 2007. Quote, lowering interest rates will certainly help the stock market. There is no question about it. And the stock market peaked in the middle of October, and you went in, and the establishment then called it the worst uh, collapse since the 1930s. Um, so, and then with now the establishment coming up with the same theories as in 2007, it looks like they can't learn anything from financial history, and... This is amazing. So we'll see how it all turns out. Now, on the nearer term, Chris, we should note that the old saying about selling May and going away, and uh, it's a seasonal thing uh, that interest rates and credit spreads and the yield curve can be positive out to around June, and if it's in a year of terrific speculation, that's when you got to pay attention. And as we all know, the first four months of the year, one of the greatest rallies ever for the S&P. So it's been very good. The base metals were likely to be good out to March, and they were. Crude oil out to around March, and it had its high in April, and the credit spreads were expected to be favorable. They were, 
And they're trying to churn now, but, Chris, not enough to make a conclusion. And the yield curve has been favorable. And it is, well, like the credit spreads, close to changing to adversity. So then the way to look at this is say, yeah, things were good into May, June. And in some instances, on some of the technical stuff, we've had good readings on momentum. We've had good readings on sentiment. And as we've discussed, the valuations are at the moon or further. So, and it's in the first half of the year. So then the patient person and the person well-informed on history will say, okay, let's watch and see if it turns to adversity after mid-year. And uh, we'll take it from there, but... My guess is if you've got party time at the time of the year when it was expected to be good, and and the, the important thing is the measures on those, then you can conclude that the stock market is precarious. I'd say very precarious. And uh, this could become more evident by the time we get into August, and then after that, and here is the other half of seasonality, is that if you're going to have a liquidity problem, it'll typically be discovered in the fall. You don't, in an ordinary year, you won't have a liquidity problem. It's only in the year where you've had a fabulous party, which we've had. So the two go together. It's fabulous, a seasonality on the peak of a fabulous move, and then seasonality on the discovery that, uh-oh, who's going to pay for it? So, I've got a competing outlook, Bob, on the way that we view stock market rallies. On paper, you're right. From a purely magnitude stance, the rally we've seen in U.S. equities and shares for the first few months of this year, there hasn't really been anything like it since the late 1990s and arguably in the history of the New York Stock Exchange. However, a more measured, a more balanced approach would be to look at rallies that lead to new highs. So let's take a new peak, a new or brand new high, and how far a market extends from the new high to even further highs, the magnitude of that move. You know, economic conditions got a little overextended. We did see the FOMC raise rates a few times, tightening cycle, you might say, over the past 18 months or so. That's come to a halt, as we anticipated correctly here on GoldSeek. I'm sure you did as well. Now it looks as though as soon as December of this year or early 2020, rate cuts may be on their agenda. Interest rates go down in the bust. They have created theories of unsupportable cause and effect because you just repeated the theory that oh there are lower interest rates they'll ease and all will be well but it's it's been buried but in 1929 as i said the um, new york post new york times explained 
the interest rate hike in August as tightening to Wall Street and easing to Main Street. And then you had crash, which was perfectly natural because that was a classical uh, bubble. But during the crash, the New York Fed, which was the powerful chapter uh, as it is today, um, leaned into the market and was buying bonds out of the market to provide liquidity. And the governor of the New York Fed extended or exceeded his authority by a huge factor. So then the crash ended uh, and cleared the markets in November of that year. And then early in the year, a Fed staffer was quoted as saying, well, we met the crisis in the classical way by providing lots of liquidity. The uh, bankers in 1929 were familiar with uh, Walter Bajhot. Uh, he was the editor at The Economist. And in 1873, he published his book called Lombard Street. And in it, he uh, described the recipe for preventing contraction which was to provide liquidity. And ironically, a book was published in 1873, which was a bubble year, and the market crashed, and in England, which was then the senior economy, it was a very severe um, contraction, and uh, each of the a couple of recessions were very severe and the recoveries were weak so that 1884 senior economists then said this is a great depression and that great depression ran from 1873 to 1895 when then a long recovery started but senior British economists were still debating how the Great Depression would have been prevented until as late as 1939 when they discovered that there was another depression. So these post-bubble contractions are serious, and the recipe was there with uh, Walter Bagehot in 1873, and the boys at the Fed knew about this in 1929, and they eased. And then in 1932, July 1932, which was the bottom of the market, the uh, Barron's, uh, the respected uh, financial journal, uh, editorialized that the Fed anti-deflation policies were seen not to work. Uh, they uh, the pro process of buying bonds out of the market wasn't working. Of course. That was a despair because it was right at the bottom. So there is lots of evidence in the literature that the Fed was very easy during the crash. And it was only in the 1960s when um, macroeconomists then with mainframe computers figured they had the answer with computer modeling on economics. So they then had to make the Federal Reserve the perfect system and then blamed uh, the crash and the depression upon the Fed 
being deliberately tight. And even a man with the stature of uh, Fried, Friedman went along with it and came up with something called uh, hot money uh, and that uh, concluded that the Fed was tight. But if you look at uh, details from the period, uh, the Fed was was easy, but the market was tightening faster than the Fed could ease. It was it's the way these uh, contractions work. So in answer to your question about the Fed easing uh, and also lowering the short rate, uh, they can ease as much as they want, but with a, a uh, bubble this big and the contraction will probably overwhelm every effort as it did in 1929. Now, also, I want to go back to the great bubble of 1873 when the England had the Bank of England as an intrusive central bank, and the Federal Reserve or the U.S. was between central banks, so they had what was then called the national or, or the uh, treasury system. And during uh, the summer of 1873, when strains were coming into the credit markets because the bubble was so dynamic. Uh, there was a newspaper in New York called The Herald. It editorialized that nothing could go wrong. And the reason why nothing could go wrong, Chris, was because the United States did not have a central bank. They had, they had the uh, treasury system on a fiat currency. So there was uh, the treasury could issue any amount of liquidity. So so the the treasury system, not on a gold standard, was the remedy, the recipe to prevent disaster, whereas the Bank of England, on a gold standard, could issue money, but not as much. So the argument in 1873 was... (laughs) The U.S. wouldn't have a problem because it didn't have a central bank. And now the story is that the U.S. won't have a problem because it does have a central bank. Chris, current thinking uh, on each of these great bubbles uh, never really accommodates the uh, evidence from yet an even earlier bubble. So I'll be fascinated to watch how it all turns out. But the... If people want to get in touch with us, I'd be glad to send out not just the study we've done on excessive valuations, but also this, it's only a couple of page paper, arguing that the valuations are not excessive. And in the manner of uh, of uh, Warren Buffett. So uh, I'd be glad to share those. So. I'm pointed. I the valuation method we've used has made a is very high relative to wages and relative to GDP, and beyond that is the powerful dynamics of getting from undervalued in 2009 or 1982 to exceptionally valued now.
How does your methodology hold up, though, from 1982 to the year 2000, and then from, let's say, 2003 to 2008, 2009 until now? These fundamental arguments have a tendency to work quite well, except when the herd gets excited, and then before you know it, it's 1997. New highs, 98, new highs, 99, new highs. Okay, let's go back to 2000 when we had this valuation. That's what I had it then using relative to GDP. And again, the uh, Wall Street came out with, uh, as, as you had that secondary rally out till September of 2000, when actually, I think the New York Stock Exchange set a composite set a higher high in uh, August than it did uh, in, at the peak in March. So anyways, <laughs> the, the, uh, all the stories came out. The Fed was going to ease and all would be well. And uh, so we pointed out, say, I, I pointed out exactly the same argument, that interest rates go up in a boom and down in the bus. So don't count on interest rates going down to extend the boom. And it did the same thing in 2007, of which I gave you here quotes, uh, exact quotes. So the issue is, is that the stock market is very overvalued. It got there, accomplished a huge dynamic gain getting there. And the uh, establishment is pushing... The same theory that it did in 2007, that the an agency, shall we use the Greek, Chris, deus ex machina, will be there to save us. So then that was in 2007, or the Fed would lower interest rates and it would save us. Uh, to, in 2000, that was the same issue. Now, let's go back. Uh, yeah, now those are ones we covered in real time. And then you, I've cited, a, oh yeah, we didn't, 1929, it was John Moody, the John Moody, who pointed out that while it was a golden age and the stock market was quite enthused, he pointed out that nothing could go wrong because you had the scientific Federal Reserve System now, and Moody also condemned the previous national banking system uh, because it was so inadequate. Of course it was inadequate because they suffered a Great Depression. So then in the 1929 boom, the establishment said all would be well because the Fed would provide liquidity and the party would continue. And then in 1873, the establishment said all would be well because they didn't have a central bank. But the existing agency, the national banking system, would provide all the liquidity needed to prevent bad times. So, Chris, how many times? 1873, 1929, 2000, 2007, five, five examples of the same story at or close to the peak of a fabulous bull market, well, a great bubble for stocks, to look for the change in order to catch the dynamics on, on the turn to the next disaster. 
Firstly, I appreciate Deus Ex Machina. Of course, that's divine intervention, or did Smith and his wealth of nations based his invisible hand on Deus Ex Machina? But when you talk about these these market peaks from, you know, the tick by tick all the way up to the weekly, monthly, and quarterly data, the one thing you can count on, selling new highs is a risky business and buying new lows is about as risky a business. But you mentioned that you can get, some call it a, a cup and handle or something like that. Then there's also the wick off, a pattern where you have a, a big spike peak and then a setback and then you come back to that level and then you're going to get the extension to new highs. Yeah, we've been watching that. My colleague, Ross Clark, keeps himself up to date on Wickoff, and that he was the first one to notice that. So we are putting everything we know into determining what kind of a market we're in. I'd just like to encourage our listeners today to remember we're advocates of building portfolios. Having recently been near a new high, in U.S. equities, I wouldn't even be thinking about about a sell-off. I'd be more concerned about the missed opportunity. And if you are worried about a sell-off, I'm sure, Bob, you'd agree that buying some hedges, some protective hedges to protect that component of U.S. equities in your portfolio probably makes the best bet. Yeah, you don't want to divest yourself of your U.S. shares. We're describing the market as we've discussed, and we've got the tools for watching industrial commodities, the curve spreads, particularly as short rates going down. So we have the technical tools to call the exit. So we're describing the condition, and we're watching for the exit. It's very methodical. I'm just trying to, to help people you know, who are not seat-of-their-pants traders to digest this information today in a way that can help their overall expected return of their portfolios, which beats 99% of investors who try to time the markets. Boosting your overall expected return, portfolio investing is the best way for the everyday investor to win. That it might be time to buy or purchase some hedges to shield their portfolio from a potential you know, sell off and you get, there's a lot, there's a number of option strategies you can do, and my colleague is very good on those. So, what we would do is is say, get in touch with us, and every day, uh, if there's something happening that's technically uh, worthwhile, we we mail it out, and then my weekly overview describes where we are. And, like, for example, on the technicals on December 26th, we got a downside capitulation in crude oil and on the S&P. And that was then the buy. But hitherto, before that, uh, the uh, the advice was that uh, in the summer was that there could be a liquidity crisis in the fall discovered. And if there was, it would likely clear by Christmas, like you would have the worst in by Christmas. So then, as I say, on December 26th came our buy signals. Well, the the ones that were effect- really critical was on the S&P and on crude oil, both at the same time. So this is where now we describe the market as very overvalued. 
at the right time because we figure it would rally out into the March, April, May win- window. And then after mid-year is when we start looking for the next change. As we wrap up today, could you please tell our listeners a bit more about the services you provide and how they can find you? Yep, Google my name, Bob Hoy, B-O-B-H-O-Y-E, or you can use bobhoy.com to get straight into all of our stuff. So, And uh, spent four years evenings and weekends hanging out at the stacks at the University of British Columbia. And so all of this, the, the history was, was my work. And it's been, it's, put, it's come together very well for us. So, Well, we really appreciate it. Good, Chris, and look forward to talking to you next time. The blockchain revolution is transforming the global arena, disrupting every industry in its path. Goldseek.com is excited to introduce an off-the-chain opportunity in digital gold and silver from our friends at Atmex and Sprott.com. One Gold holds physical gold and silver medals at the Royal Canadian Mint, the first online marketplace to offer secure and convenient buying, selling, and redemption of digital precious metals. One Gold uses Vault Chain, a secure, immutable blockchain ledger developed by Tradewind markets, the leading innovator in digital precious metals distributed ledger and blockchain technology. Vault Chain. Gold and silver are 100% redeemable through one gold. For physical precious metals delivered to customers' doors in any size at competitive prices and low transaction storage costs. As a special offer and for a limited time only, One Gold is offering gold and silver at spot price with no additional premiums. OneGold.com is secure and accessible 24-7 on any device, offering convenient purchases and sales of precious metals. Easy recurring transactions make passive saving and gold dollar cost averaging as easy as a single mouse click. Vault Chain offers the best tier pricing on AppMex products, setting the industry standard as a fully backed physical asset with easy redemption in coins, rounds, or bars, offering clients peace of mind and full transparency. Don't get left behind. Remember to bookmark OneGold.com for the safest and most convenient digital precious metals today. Remember OneGold. GoldSeek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. Shopping for fine jewelry just got easier. GoldSeek.com has identified the most successful jewelry brand to launch in recent times. Many Jewelry is rewriting the way consumers buy fine jewelry. Integrity Craftsmanship, the only company to sell 24-karat gold and platinum jewelry, avoiding confusing alloys and gems, a true precious metals investment. Many Jewelry's disruptive business model embraces Franco-American craftsmanship and direct-to-consumer economics, rapidly disrupting the $20 billion monopoly, just like Amazon and Uber. The sky is the limit with $1 billion of jewelry purchases daily for loved ones and those special occasions. Many Jewelry is an innovator positioned to capture market share with annual sales growth in the industry topping $30 billion by 2021. Many Jewelry coined the term investment jewelry, pricing by the gram, transparently disclosing its profit margins, a truer investment in pure gold or platinum. Similar to real estate, even artwork, Many Jewelry has a weighted value easily calculated, ensuring value wealth as a long-term investment. With sales in 60 countries around the globe, 20,000 
orders already. Don't miss out on the explosive growth potential. Many jewelry trades under the symbols M-E-N-E on the Toronto Exchange and in the U.S. M-E-N-E-F. Remember to sign up to May's Shareholder Club to receive shareholder news, updates, and special discount codes for jewelry purchases. Remember, many jewelry. GoldSeek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. Thanks for choosing GoldSeek.com radio as a trusted business and investing news source. Welcome back, Peter Schiff. Hey, Chris, how are you? Good. We're hearing talk that maybe U.S. equities have reached a pinnacle, topped out after one of the most stunning rallies in years, early part of 2019. What's going on? Well, I think so. I mean, I said on my on my podcast uh, at the beginning of May, remember the first day of May, I did a podcast, and that was a day where the Fed came out and uh, disappointed the markets and wasn't as dovish as the markets had been expecting. And uh, so I thought that was uh, a key moment. The market sold off a little, uh, but at that time I said, um, I think the bear market rally is over. It actually, the bear market rally was more substantial than I, than I thought. I called the rally as soon as the Fed uh, did the reversal on uh, monetary policy. I called the rally. In fact, I called the rally before the Fed reversed because I knew the Fed was going to reverse. Uh, and I said that when the Fed reversed and took the rate hikes off the table, that the markets would rally. I just did not think the rally would be as strong because some of the indexes actually made new highs. And normally a bear market rally can't do that. Uh, but this one did. I mean, it was a very vicious bear market rally. Uh, but it ended, I think, on May 1st. And then I reiterated uh, that call the following week on a couple of podcasts when Donald Trump basically pulled the rug out from under the markets. Uh, by escalating the trade war, when he put out those tweets that he was about to hit, uh, you know, more Chinese products with 25% tariffs, uh, the market started to go down. In fact, the Dow is down maybe 6% now since the beginning of May, uh, and uh, so I guess a lot of people probably wish they they sold in May and went away, but they, uh, you know, they, they didn't understand how big the problem is, nor do they understand. I think I said uh, initially on my podcast. Uh, after Trump's tweets, when the Dow was down about 600 points at one day, inter- you know, it didn't close down 600. It closed down maybe 400 or something, but it was down 600. Uh, people thought it was an overreaction. I thought that the markets were underreacting, that if people really understood uh, how bad the situation was, we would be down 6,000 points, not 600. You just look back. I mean, historically, uh, the markets have uh, been pretty strong in the beginning of the year. And seasonally, the markets do have a tendency to sell off in the summertime. Generally, the time to come back has been, uh, you know, October time frame. You know, sometimes we get some big sell-offs, September, October, and then you usually get a year-end rally. But I think the summer is usually uh, historically, not always, of course, you know, it doesn't always work. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, the markets keep going up. And, and, and selling in May hasn't worked that well uh, over the last uh, many years because we've been, this is the biggest bull market we've ever had as far as duration. And um, so I guess, you know, people who were expecting it to die easily uh, were disappointed. I mean, uh, they, you know, it, this, this, this market has been hard to kill. I do think it's dead, you know, and I think the the, bull, the bear market is not alive and well. Uh, people thought it was over when, you know, the markets rallied, but, you know, that's what bear market rallies do. They, they, they convince people that 
this is not a bear market. Okay, so you're convinced then that we're looking at something similar. Let's go back 10 years, 2008, 2009. As the market was topping around 2007, it took a good, wouldn't you agree, 18 months before we had the brutal sell-off. Do you see more sideways sine wave action until that occurs? Well, I think I think the market's headed lower. Um, I mean, maybe the announcement of some kind of a trade deal could cause a rally, but at this point, I, I wouldn't think yet. I don't think the market's low enough. Uh, but I think that we're going to go back down to where we stopped last time, you know, to, you know, down approximately 20% from the highs in the Dow and the S&P. That is when the Fed did the about face. And so the next thing the Fed is going to do is actually cut rates. So they haven't done that yet. All they've done is take the rate hikes off the table, um, but they haven't cut rates. And that's going to be their next move, most likely. That and potentially, you know, ending uh, the quantitative tightening program. But of course, it will be followed by the return to quantitative easing. All that is coming. The only question mark is, will it come incrementally or all at once? And, you know, there's no way to know. But even if they start incrementally, uh, that won't produce a large enough rally. And of course, the economy is heading into recession. I mean, everybody, you know, bought into the head fake of that 3.2% GDP number that we got for Q1, which surprised everybody. But if you really look at that number, uh, there are a lot of one-off effects that really need to be, you know, pulled out to get a better handle on what was going on in the first quarter. It was not an economy growing at 3.2%, much less than that. And I think we're going to see a big give back in the second quarter. And so when you average the first half of the year, you know, we can end up, you know, with an average rate of below 2%. And, you know, we're going down from there. If we backtrack to, you know, the beginning of this, the last QE, you know, operation, we started off with about $500 million on the Fed's balance sheet approximately. We haven't wrung that excess three, almost $3 trillion. We're in an unusual position here that we've never really seen in history. The Fed for years was lying that they would return the balance sheet to the levels it was at before the crisis. And that, as you said, was under a trillion dollars. Well, you know, they, they were at four and a half trillion. Now we're just below four trillion. We're 3.9 something. Uh, and they're almost done with the, with the, uh, wind down. And so they didn't get anywhere near where they started. I mean, the balance sheet was, you know, barely declined, uh, you know, maybe 10, 15% or whatever it is, 20% decline max. And then they're going to wrap it up again and they're going to go well above four and a half trillion. I mean, they're, they're going to take the balance sheet, you know, to infinity and beyond. Because I think that's implied, isn't it? When you don't return to your starting point, it's almost de facto baked into the cake, eventual runaway prices. This is debt monetization. This is exactly what Ben Bernanke denied the Fed was doing. He lied to Congress, and I pointed that lie out at the time that he said it. Uh, and the markets still haven't called the Fed out on this. Uh, and... The, the idea that this is not a permanent increase in the size of the balance sheet, that means the Federal Reserve is monetizing U.S. government debt. It is taking the debt and turning it into money. It is buying up the bonds and printing Federal Reserve notes that are never going to be withdrawn from circulation. This is how Banana Republics finance government. This is exactly what we told the markets we weren't going to do, but this is exactly what we're doing. And, and, and this is a, you know, a disastrous course, which means endless money printing 
And it also means that there's no way the Fed doesn't have a mechanism uh, for draining liquidity. You know, as inflation starts to really accelerate, they can't do anything about it. They can't sell these bonds that are permanently part of their portfolio. We need to qualify, don't we, when we say they don't have a mechanism for draining liquidity. What I think you mean is they're faulty. They don't have the power that they had in the past to divest those securities. They, if, they had, if they had the power to do it, they would have done it. They, they can't. They had to stop it. I mean, yes, in theory, they could sell the treasuries to buy back the, their, their, the dollars, the Federal Reserve notes, but they won't do it because the economy would implode. The banks would fail. I mean, the government would be forced to default on its debt. I mean, th this is the box that the Federal Reserve has you know, put us into by subsidizing government, by making it possible for government to get bigger and bigger and bigger and to fund ever-increasing deficits. They, they've put us at the situation where the, the currency itself is in jeopardy because there is now so much debt that the choices are ominous, either a complete collapse of this entire bubble uh, with massive losses on a scale much greater than anything seen in 2008, with nobody getting bailed out, or they destroy the currency and, you know, we're like Argentina. And, you know, the dollar just, you know, just you know, becomes monopoly money. That, that's where we're at. I mean, there, there is no graceful way out of this. We have two potential disasters. One is just worse than the other. I'm glad you brought up Argentina. According to our guest last week, Professor Kotlikoff, Argentina had one of the, if not the highest at one point, highest per capita standards of living before they devalued and destroyed their currency. What do you say to our listeners who are scratching their heads? Everything Peter's saying is right on paper. But, you know, the U.S. still is the strongest manufacturing nation, even bigger than Europe, as far as that's concerned. And only China is coming close to rivaling its manufacturing power. You know, we have the biggest trade deficit in manufactured goods. So, uh, you know, so we're a, we're a large country and we need to manufacture something. But the problem is we don't manufacture nearly enough. And a lot of the stuff that we do count as being manufactured here is really just assembled here uh, because we, we import a lot of uh, the components. I, I used to use the example of Callaway Golf Clubs, which, oh, they say, oh, we, may, we manufacture Callaway Golf Clubs in the United States. Well, we, we import the, the shaft, we import, import the grip, and we import the head. So all we do here is, you know, attach them to each other. So could we really make that golf club without importing all that stuff just because it counts as being, being made here? So a lot of the numbers uh, overestimate how much we're actually manufacturing versus what we're simply assembling. We don't have the, the savings. We don't make the capital investments. We have built this country on, on debt and consumption and imports. And the reason that you know, people think that our economy is strong is because we're able to continue to go deeper into debt to spend more borrowed money. And so, you know, if you have somebody who's out there and he's spending on credit cards and, and, and living it up and driving a flashy car and eating in restaurants and travel around, you may not know that this person is broke, that they have no job and they're just going deeper into debt. But if they could keep on getting another credit card and, and, and increasing their, their, their limits, they can fool you for longer. And that's what's happening with America. When people look at the U.S. economy and they think it's so strong, it's simply because we're able to continue to borrow money that we have no ability to repay 
and the, people still lend it to us. So that you can't confuse that. Just because we keep on shopping, uh, it doesn't mean we have a strong economy. It just means the bubble is getting bigger and bigger, and bigger. But eventually, it's going to pop. And by the time it does, you know, obviously by then it's too late to do anything about it. I mean, I see a lot of similarities between asset bubbles today and the year 2000. Can you tell people your thoughts on the likelihood that now that the Fed funds futures at the Chicago Merck are predicting a rate cut cycle as soon as December of this year or January next year? Do you see any chance that this reaction in U.S. equities might lead to higher highs, an extended bull rally as Fed officials and policymakers try to prop up in the economy? Obviously, it's possible that the market can make new highs, and we're not even that far from the highs, maybe 5 6% or whatever we are. So it's certainly possible. But I don't think that the Fed is going to be able to reflate the bubble uh, by going back to the, the QE policies. I mean, first of all, they're going to have to go to zero on rates. It's not like you know a little bit of a you know, cut. But even going to zero, it's only 200 basis points or so of cuts. So that's not nearly as much as they used to reflate the last bubble. And generally, each time you, you a bubble pops, they need a much bigger one to, to replace it. So they're not going to be able to create a bigger bubble with just 200 basis points of rate cuts. So where they're going to have to put in the extra oomph is going to be in the size of the QE program, which instead of being $85 billion a month, which is what we had in QE3, we could end up with two or $300 billion a month in, in money printing. But there also may be a different mechanism where that money may not be entering the economy through the stock market the way it did before. I mean, they may be just giving it directly to uh, individuals in, in, in gov you know, government programs. Who knows how this uh, quantitative easing is going to uh, filter through in the economy. But I do think it's going to be very inflationary, not for asset prices next time, but for consumer prices. You know, the dollar is uh, at an all-time high, really, or close to it, the trade-weighted dollar index. Uh, it was at an all-time low when the Fed launched QE1. So when the Fed started QE before, the dollar was very low and it rose, and that helped keep prices in check. But this time, the dollar is very high, and I think when they launch QE, it's going to tank. And if you look at the, the, the trajectory of consumer prices, and even the way the government measures them, we have been creeping higher and higher and higher, and I think that's going to accelerate. And that's going to rain on this parade when you really start to see stagflation. I mean, this is not the environment that we're used to. Everybody is used to the when, oh, when the economy weakens, then inflation pulls back and bonds rally and there's safety in bonds. And that acts as a stabilizer to the economy because we're so deeply in debt. But every time there's a recession, debtors get relief because rates go down. But if we get a recession where the markets turn up the heat on debtors because we end up with inflation and recession simultaneously, and so bonds don't rally, bonds go down, and then interest rates rise, imagine how much weaker the next recession is going to be when consumers are faced with rising interest rates, not falling interest rates, and when the cost of living is going up, not you know, remaining stable. So this is going to be you know, a, a disaster of epic proportions. People should be buying physical gold. I mean, obviously, shiftgold.com is the best place to buy it. I mean, we're, we're and, and sales have been very weak all over the, the gold world, which is another great contrarian indicator. Thanks so much. Okay. 
shopping for fine jewelry just got easier. Goldseek.com has identified the most successful jewelry brand to launch in recent times. Many Jewelry is rewriting the way consumers buy fine jewelry. Integrity Craftsmanship, the only company to sell 24 karat gold and platinum jewelry, avoiding confusing alloys and gems, a true precious metals investment. Many Jewelry's disruptive business model embraces Franco-American craftsmanship and direct-to-consumer economics, rapidly disrupting the $20 billion monopoly, just like Amazon and Uber. The sky is the limit with $1 billion of jewelry purchases daily for loved ones and those special occasions. Many Jewelry is an innovator positioned to capture market share with annual sales growth in the industry topping $30 billion by 2021. Many Jewelry coined the term investment jewelry, pricing by the gram, transparently disclosing its profit margins, a truer investment in pure gold or platinum. Similar to real estate, even artwork, Many Jewelry has a weighted value easily calculated ensuring value wealth as a long-term investment. But sales in 60 countries around the globe, 20,000 orders already, don't miss out on the explosive growth potential. Many Jewelry trades under the symbols M-E-N-E on the Toronto Exchange and in the U.S. M-E-N-E-F. Remember to sign up to Many's Shareholder Club to receive shareholder news, updates, and special discount codes for jewelry purchases. Remember, Many Jewelry. Goldseek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. The blockchain revolution is transforming the global arena, disrupting every industry in its path. Goldseek.com is excited to introduce an off-the-chain opportunity in digital gold and silver from our friends at Atmex and Sprott.com. One Gold holds physical gold and silver medals at the Royal Canadian Mint, the first online marketplace to offer secure and convenient buying, selling, and redemption of digital precious metals. One Gold uses Vault Chain a secure, immutable blockchain ledger developed by Tradewind Markets, the leading innovator in digital precious metals distributed ledger and blockchain technology. Vault Chain. Gold and silver are 100% redeemable through one goal. For physical precious metals delivered to customers' doors in any size at competitive prices and low transaction storage costs. As a special offer and for a limited time only, One Gold is offering gold and silver at spot price with no additional premiums. OneGold.com is secure and accessible 24-7 on any device, offering convenient purchases and sales of precious metals. Easy recurring transactions make passive saving and gold dollar cost averaging as easy as a single mouse click. Vault Chain offers the best tier pricing on AppMex products, setting the industry standard as a fully backed physical asset with easy redemption in coins, rounds, or bars, offering clients peace of mind and full transparency. Don't get left behind. Remember to bookmark OneGold.com for the safest and most convenient digital precious metals today. Remember OneGold. Goldseek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. This is Robert Ian with Goldseek.com Radio. In the past few weeks, I have been noticing junk email from LendingTree, which are solicitations for cash-out refinancing of your home. It says, rest easy, get the money you need by cash-out refinancing. Then they promise to help with what they assume are two goals the reader of this junk email has. Number one, lower your current home interest rate. And number two, instantly deliver the funds you need at a low interest rate. You can stop the presses right there. 
and can safely assume we are definitely right now at a guaranteed top in the real estate market. All that froth in home price appreciation the past three and a half to four years is about to pop. And when it does, those cash-out refinance loans you take today and spend are going to turn into the negative equity upside-down mortgage on your home tomorrow. The ad shows a young couple sitting on the sofa in their living room, gazing lovingly at their family. The unspoken implication is that you can take cash out of your home and do something nice for your family. We've seen this kind of advertising before, in 2007 and 2008. Anyone with a long enough memory knows what happened next. But so many are again lulled into the illusion of prosperity, and that their home is somehow a piggy bank, waiting to be rubbed like Aladdin's lamp to grant them their three wishes and satisfy their instant gratification. If I could superimpose thought bubbles over that advertising image, a more accurate representation might be that mom and dad are gazing at their family, not knowing if they will have enough money left in the third week of the month to buy groceries, or fill up their car with gas, or make the car payment, or get the electric bill paid on time. The fact is, if their home has actually appreciated on paper, and they believe they can get cash out, the only prudent way to do that would be to sell the house, thereby getting rid of an asset that is likely to depreciate, take their cash out that way, and downsize their lifestyle into a less expensive home or rental somewhere else. But that's not going to happen now, is it? Everyone has become emotionally attached to the house or neighborhood, and the thought of uprooting oneself and making a preemptive change sounds too hard. It's easier, so they think, to sign a mindless piece of paper and hope for the best. However, when the market changes and that house-turned-piggy bank drops in value, they will be stuck. They will become what so many became in the aftermath of 2008, a phrase I coined on this very broadcast. They will become geographic prisoners to a home they cannot sell, thereby limiting choices and options for relocating if work ever dries up or worse. Change is not always easy. Some prefer the ostrich head in the sand approach. But when ads like this are now commonplace in your junk email, we are definitely at the top of a very tall roller coaster. And soon, the only sound you may hear is look out below. And until next time, this is Robert Ian with ConquerChange.com. 
Thanks, Chris. Okay, Robert, thanks for another excellent installment. Well, that wraps up this week's GoldSeek.com radio episode. For two new big guests, be sure to check out next week's show. Until we talk to you again, have a great week. GoldSeek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice.